Uh, let's move on to your own bodybuilding. And let's yeah, take, take it there. Uh, so you've said you've done 13 shows um, since 2015. Uh, you've talked that you've been mainly with the NPC. That's uh, similar to quite a few of my guests recently. So we're, we're all very familiar with the NPC, which is very high level uh, competition in, in the States. And it's, it's where a lot of people will then be on the verge of getting their pro card, which is fantastic. Um, here's a question that I'm going to ask you, which I ask all my clients. It's not on the list, but we'll ask it anyway. What do you feel you need to do to hit that pro card? For your physique. All right. Absolutely. So I definitely need to focus more on an off season and improvement season. So um, one thing that I've, I've made the mistake of doing over the years, um, I'll be critical on myself, is I stay too lean year round. And that's for a multitude of reasons. Um, I land a lot of modeling jobs and I've kind of been in this predicament where I want to do the, be the best of both. I want to be a great fitness model and, and land covers and, and be on mag in magazines as well as doing footage. You know, when I do uh, like a yearly footage with men's fitness magazine and some prominent magazines out here, but then I also want to compete and there are two different looks. With modeling, it's a much softer look, um, you know, less vascular, um, not as deep cuts. And then obviously with competing, we're dry to the bone, hard, dense, grainy. Um, and I really pride myself on conditioning, which I've never had an issue uh, achieving. However, I haven't um, put on the, the amount of appreciable muscle or size that I've needed to over the last couple of years. And initially that didn't hurt me competitive wise because I had already built up a nice foundation. And uh, in the initial years of men's physique, when I started, it was a smaller look, but these guys have really brought it to the next level. If you look yeah. at guys, Brandon Hedrickson or, um, you know, Andre Ferguson, oh, or even yeah. Jimmy Bondi. I've met all these guys in person. Or, or, George, um, or George Peterson. I mean, he's basically a small bodybuilder. Yeah. Isn't he now going to open bodybuilding? Or 212 at least. He's going to 212, absolutely. There you go, yeah. So these men's physique guys, you could take off their shorts and they could compete <laughs> in classic. A lot of them actually weigh more than they would in classic. Um, I have a friend based out of Texas who uh, is five foot, five foot ten, I believe. And uh, he did the Arnold Classic in 2019. And he weighed in at 228 pounds. So that was, I believe, six to eight pounds more than he would have been for his classic cutoff. It's a big well, imagine, guy. very big. So it's, we're dealing with a different playing field. So really what I need to do, and I know this, is, is take an extended period where I allow myself to get, get bigger, um, really put on some, some quality tissue. And also it needs to be a time period where I'm not traveling as much because I am someone that I, despite that I do promote flexible dieting for clients, I just, I personally don't, do it for myself just due to digestive issues. I just yeah. don't assimilate and digest certain nutrients or certain food sources as well as others. So I pack and, and travel with all my food. So there's been periods where I'm freeze drying two to three weeks worth of food at a time and to bring a massive quantity, it, it's limiting. So um, really need to prioritize an off season. I need to get over the fact that I can't stay with a six pack year round and more of a psychological thing. I think a lot of competitors deal with that, uh, especially those that have been very, um, consistent and active on the circuit. So that's actually something I plan on doing this year. I, I am, even despite this, uh, before this time period, uh, I was planning on taking the rest of this year off um, and going into an off-season phase. So I had been increasing my calories. Uh, initially, I went to maintenance with COVID-19 just because I was in a, a massive surplus and obviously being a lot less active and not traveling as much and not moving as much, um, I wanted to offset that, that decrease in meat, but uh, I'm slowly titrating my calories up uh, to go into an off-season phase um, to make the progress that I need. And then next year, I plan on coming back onto the circuit. I think you'd be surprised at how much muscle you're able to put in that first full year of actually bulking hard. Because I, I had a client, one of my best transformations that I did with a client was a guy called Mark, who's a close friend of mine. And he, he had been a fitness trainer and he also was also involved in rugby when he was younger, but he'd always stayed underweight. And uh, he did one off-season with me and we actually managed to put on 12 pounds of stage weight in one year. For a natural, that's a lot of muscle. Wow. And it, that's a hell of a lot of it. That's a hell of a lot. And we, I mean, I force fed the hell out of it. Um, and we did a lot of good training, but he's never managed to put on that amount of muscle since. And, you know, he's, but that really, and I think the reason he was able to do that, and I did actually put it in my post. I said, look, this is a great transformation, but bear in mind, we were able to do this because he was pushing, pulling himself back. I didn't, yes. want, I didn't want people to, yeah, I didn't want people to get the wrong impression. Like this is not just a guaranteed 10, 12 pounds of muscle for a natural. That's very hard to do. Um, so yeah, I think that sort of, that was, I think you'd be surprised, you know, how much you're able to actually put on. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I, I do believe that it's, it's a slingshot effect. And one thing that I'm very into biomarkers. So I track uh, pretty much every uh, biometric that you could think of, but especially um, I do blood glucose, postprandial glucose, uh, because my dad was a diabetic. So I'm very into um, 
you know, monitoring things. I always have a glucometer on me. I probably prick myself. Mine over there. See? Yeah, great minds think alike. But I'm always monitoring to that. And that's not only because of that, but also because I'm currently in the, in the process of formulating a GDA for, for my company. So very instant glucose disposal agents um, in that category, you know, insulin mimickers and things of that sort. But um, being insulin sensitive is one of the key components to growing and accruing tissue in a lean fashion. So I know I'm very insulin sensitive. I'm in a lean body, you know, I'm in a lean point at all times. So I feel like I'll be able to have that rebound effect without, I feel like a lot of people, they say they're going to do a post-show rebound when really your, your body, your fat cells are more sensitized to regaining fat than they are to accrue muscle tissue. Think about it. At the end of a prep, I never go into a phase where I start pushing food hard out the gate. I want to recover my hormonal systems. Um, I also want to decrease, you know, increase leptin levels and decrease ghrelin through increased like carbohydrate feeding. But I don't want to overshoot that all I do is gain fat uh, in the name of, of post-show rebound. Yeah, I mean, the, my, my take on that is in that position, you, at that point after a contest, you're actually at the weakest. So you're not going to be able to deliver the intensity required to build muscle. People, you know, you might, it might seem hard, but then, I mean, you know what it's like. If you're prepping for a competition, walking down the street seems hard, you know. <laughs> so are you, able to get, are you able to actually deliver the effort you need to train properly? So I do the same as you. I'll do maintenance for a while. Yeah, no, and I see a lot of competitors, they'll continue pushing, especially, you know, on, on the PED side. And it's like you just wore your system down for so long. There is so many systemic stress markers that are up. Uh, you're inflamed. Your thyroid's downregulated. There's so many hormonal cascades that are in, in different different aspects than they should be. That that's the time that you should focus on recovery and then keep yourself insulin sensitive. And when there is a good time period where you're recovered, then you go into a growth phase. So I feel like I'm in a, in a good spot for that. So I look forward to taking an extended off season uh, and doing. You know, you guys in the UK have have some great approaches or great successes with with off season so i just i was just speaking with joe jeffrey i know you've had yeah. him as a yeah, I know joe, yeah. and we're talking about callum and and his rebound of how much tissue he's put on so another thing i've been looking at i've been speaking to scott stevenson a little bit i, I just reread fortitude training for the third time i'm going to do fortitude training as well because i am a high volume trainer and i i have ex, i expend a lot of calories in the process of doing so and i don't use training as a calorie expenditure or a method of calorie expenditure, but I am someone that I like being in the gym and it's very hard for me to pull back. So a lot of times it's, it's hard enough. It's hard for me to eat enough to fuel that training. So I, I end up, I might be in a surplus when it looks, when I look at my, my daily macros or my caloric count. But when I look at my expenditure, my knee, I've just made it a maintenance calorie. Yeah. Yeah. No, Joe's a really interesting guy. Me and him are quite close personal friends. I've been to visit a few times. He's been to visit me and we're on a private forum where we, we talk most days. So he's, he's a nice guy. Really knows his stuff. And Scott, big, massive respect for Scott as well. He's Absolutely. an incredible resource. Um, I tried fortitude trading myself for a little while. It's a very interesting routine. Um, yeah. I, don't undulating periodization. I actually, I utilize undulating periodization as it is and higher frequency. The only thing I haven't done is really pull back on a volume tier like he does. So I want to utilize it and follow it to a T because I've been doing, I, I have always taken different people's ideologies. I use a lot of the Renaissance periodization uh, type uh, training um, approaches and methods and I've combined them with Scott, some Scott stuff. And then also maybe I'll do like the exercise sequencing of a mountain dog style training um, but I've kind of blended a lot of methods, which has worked to, for me up until this point. But I kind of just want to take on someone's approach, try it for an extended period, doing uh, you know a long mesocycle of it, and seeing the results I get. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that from the guys that I've had on the show recently, these are all guys who are in the two ninety to three hundred pound range. They, interestingly enough, they've all used a fairly low volume approach. Now. Oof. you can take from that what you will because although it's low volume some of these guys are lifting weights which is ridiculously heavy so their warm-up sets and their acclimatization sets are actually building up quite a lot of volume on the way up as well so it's it's an interesting thing to to try and speculate on me personally i've always done quite well with anywhere between 10 to 20 sets to use your recommendation nowadays i'm more That's on the lower end yeah nowadays i'm more on the lower end but I think the value of that is it allows you to really focus into what you need to do. So if you're going to do 10 sets really focused, great form, really hard, that's always going to win out compared to 20 half-ass sets. And I think, I think that's it. So it's not, it's, we're not always comparing apples with apples. It's sort of an apples to orange comparison. And I think if people are doing like the junk volume, as Mike Israel would say, that's always going to be worse than 10 hard sets, even if that's technically below the threshold. Absolutely.
Yeah, so I'm, I'm personally in between about 15 to 20 sets per body part. Some I, I take it, some weak points that I, I train on a more frequent basis, smaller body parts like delts or buys that might recover. I might do a little bit more uh, in comparison, but larger body parts. Uh, back is, is 18 to 21 sets per week. Chest is between 14 and 18 sets per week. Things Legs, same in that, that same uh, 14 to 18 sets per week threshold. Uh, and, and higher frequency so I could really maximize every single set, which I do within that session because – I've never really responded well to the the bro split, the one body part per day and smash it for 14 to 20 sets. It never has really worked for my mindset, but also for my, my ability to generate intensity past probably like that eighth to 10th set. So here's a question then. What, what is your current training split per week? Yeah. So I'm working on a modified push pull. So essentially what I do is I had everything three times per week, but push would be, so I, I undulate my rep schemes. So for instance, it's set up quite similarly to 42 training. So on the first push day, it is a loading chest, shoulder, try, and a pump legs or pump quads rather. So all pushing movements. Uh, on day two is a loading pull. So it's going to be um, loading back, loading rear delts, and loading uh, biceps, and then a pump, you know, pump exercise or, or sequence for hamstrings and then a day off, and then I go into a loading for the opposite ends of the spectrum. So the loading push would be a loading quadricep uh, uh, exercise, and then I go into pump work for chest, shoulders, and medial delts. Yeah. Um, from there, the next day I do um, loading for hamstrings, and then pump for back, rear delts, and buys, and then I have another day off, and on my next, on my weekend, I do usually one session, and it's a, a weak point training session, but I do some type of higher volume, um, more full body workout. So gotcha. this week, for instance, uh, I did all muscle rounds. Some weeks it'll be a different intensity technique and I'll do rest, pause, one exercise for every single body part, but that's letting me get to that third threshold and just accumulate a little bit more volume. And then generally what I'll do is if I'm really pushing hard in the mesocycle, I'll uh, accumulate volume throughout the weeks and I'll add a set to the body parts that I'm trying to bring up. So for instance, if I'm trying to do a chest and back specialization phase, I will add one set per week for each of those workouts. So a total of two sets uh, per work, per major workout uh, for four to six weeks. I'll accumulate that volume up to my max recoverable volume. And then I'll, I'll deload and I'll go back to where more of my maintenance. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a great system to get you to grow. I mean, that's, that's a similar system to what I use for a lot of my clients. I'll have work in blocks. I'll definitely always do deloads because I think that's really valuable. Uh, me and Joe have had our arguments about that in the past as well. So he's... Uh, now, are you, are you a planned deloader or are you a reactive deloader? I'm a planned deloader. Always okay. have been. Yeah, I'm a planned deloader. I've come from a powerlifting background. I'm a planned deloader. And okay. I suppose I've had quite a lot of injuries in the past, but my first experiences of really accelerating my strength came from deloads. So um, I've, I've always done that. And my clients, touch wood, <laughs> very rarely get injured. Um, and so I think that's one of those which I have a aversion towards injury because of my, I, I basically had to end my powerlifting career due to lots and lots of injuries. And so I have an aversion to that with my clients. So if they're doing bodybuilding, I'm, I'm always taking proactive deloads, usually every fifth or sixth week, so fairly frequent. But my take on it is, there are certain systems in the body which aren't going to give you biofeedback to say that they're fatigued, like tendons. Tendons aren't going to tell you, look, I'm, I'm, I'm about to snap. They're just going to snap. Um, and, I, and I know that. You know, I know that from, from, from having you know, elbows which have messed up and shoulders and all that kind of stuff. So you can say, well, you just need to be in tune with your body. And that's fine. That's a good perspective. But there are certain parts of the body which aren't going to give you the feedback to say, well, look, I'm going to go anytime soon. So if you take a proactive approach to deloading, I feel you kind of ward that off for a lot longer. And as I say, it's, it's worked in swim work and so far. What about yourself? Yes, yeah, so I'm very similar. Um, I go anywhere between five to eight weeks. Um, and then I also do do some reactive deloading, and it's for this specifically. So like I said, I travel excessively. I'm constantly all around the country. I have accounts. You know, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, crossing different time zones and things of that sort. So a lot of times it's for two reasons, either the travel in and of itself. Sometimes I'm traveling on a, on a flight up to three times a week and I just feel more systemically fatigued um, as a result, whether it be from jet lag or just the traveling in general, taking early flights, late flights uh, and just being, you know, kind of trapped in a, in a 
uncomfortable air, you know, airline seat for long periods of time. So I'll do some reactive deloading in that capacity where it might be a, a session of reactive deloading. Um, so I'll just pull down the volume. I generally like to do my deloading by pulling down the volume threshold. I usually do it by a reduction of about 30% of total volume and I maintain intensity. So I'll generally do a reactive deload on the road if I see that one day I'm off or if I go into the gym and I warm up and I do my mobility work and my, um, my potentiation work, my, my potentiation exercise, and I see something's off, I'm going to pull it back. You know, I'm not going to risk it, especially when I'm on the road. If I'm in, the, in, in my home gym and I know that my nutrition, my sleep, everything has been spot on and everything has been the same, I'm going to push through until I get to that threshold of at least five to eight weeks. But I generally do a paradigm of, of six, a six to one ratio. So six yeah. weeks pushing the mesocycle and then one week deloading. I think for somebody like yourself, that's perfect. I mean, I've, I've only ever had one client who had such a busy schedule and that was, he worked for Cadbury's, the, the chocolate company. And yeah. so he basically, two out of every four weeks, he would be abroad somewhere. He might be in Africa one week, he might be in Switzerland the next week. I mean, it was just a crazy schedule. But um, for him, it was a case of, look, we're not going to schedule deloads because there's no point. Life will give you a deload. So, Absolutely. And so I think for you, that's a perfect approach. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, so I like having them pre-planned for the fact that I know when something's coming, and it also helps me mentally and, and psychologically to push, especially that last week. If I'm, volume, I'm accumulating volume, and now I'm, say, for instance, 10 sets above where I started my initial mesocycle, um, you know, it's a hard week. You're, yeah. you're but knowing that you have that next week that you're going to be able to bring it back, you're going to be able to do a reduction of volume and really get that super compensatory effect. Um, it gives you something to look forward to or, or to push through. So I like having that in the back of my mind, but there are days, and this was something I didn't do five, six years ago, where if I was on the road and I was scheduled for a specific uh, training um, you know, schedule and I, a specific workout, I pushed through regardless. And that ended up with injuries. It ended up with you know, trips that were less successful than they could have been because I was laid up on, on the bed, you know, in, in agony rather than, you know, doing, taking extra sales meetings and stuff. So I, I really stress to people, um, you know, I'd mentioned it previously, but a lot of people in this industry and a lot of people in general, they make excuses for their fitness, uh, whether it be COVID-19 and you don't have access to a gym right now, or it's that you're really busy at home with, you know, your, your family life or your work life, there is always time. So there's been years that I've trained at 4am fasted. There's been years I've trained at 11pm. Uh, it doesn't matter as long as you're able to prioritize and manage your, your time effectively. If something's important to you, you'll make it happen. And in the same token, you need to realize when it's time to push and when it's time to pull back. And that's been the biggest lesson that I've learned, um, really focusing on recovery and lowering stress as a whole, because a lot of times we don't realize the deleterious effect that mental and phys uh, 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 psychological stress has on our physiological systems. So work stress, home life stress. A lot of times we go in the gym and we see it as an outlet, but sometimes it's compounding, you know, those, those issues. Oh, yeah. So we have to know when it's time to push and it's a good time. You're in a, in a phase where you need to push hard, whether it be to accumulate uh, volume, to push weights in, in terms of a progressive overload fashion, or it's, it's time to push the diet. But at the same time, you need to know when it's time to, to reel back in the reins and say, listen, my, my body's beat down. I need either a day off or I need to take it a little bit lighter. I need to do a refeed day or two um, and things of that sort. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the sort of super compensation approach and then deload you know, paradigm. I think that works great for the reasons you said. I mean, it gives you something to look forward to. But also when I got into bodybuilding probably about five years ago, so since 15 years of powerlifting, um, that's all we did. All we did was was blocks of training. And so when I got into bodybuilding, I was like, hey guys, so how do you get stronger? How do you get bigger? They're like, oh, you just go in a train, you use a routine. I'm like, that seems weird. How do you get stronger? It's like, well, you just, you just do. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, so when I heard about the Michael Tales approach of actually applying a similar periodization model to bodybuilding, as I used to do in powerlifting, that immediately clicked. I was like, okay, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. I can tell he knows what he's talking about. I know. Because it makes sense. Because everyone else is just like, well, just add two and a half pounds onto the bar next week. I was like, is it really that easy? Because I'm sorry, but it's not that easy, you know? <laughs> yeah, and I do believe in progressive overload. I do, like I said, I, I do do loading schemes, uh, meaning that I do progressively overload one body part for each day. And I try to focus in on that within a rep range of, of six to 12. However, progressive overload will run out. Uh, you cannot get, and, and a lot of times I think there's a misconception. When I say progressive overload, I'm, I'm looking at it from the, the, 
the realms and, and the perspective of the average person. They only see progressive overload as weight on the bar. And a lot of people forget that you could progress volume. That's progressive overload. You could decrease rest periods in between and, and increase the intensity in that fashion. You could put more reps into a certain weight, uh, you know, and accumulate reps per week. And that's increasing total tonnage, so total volume. And, and they don't realize that that's a form of progressive overload that doesn't just solely rely on weight because what I see with myself in the past, but also with a ton of my clients is when we've done more of the progressive overload, whether it be a DC fashion style um, training split or even JP would be very popular. I know out there by yeah, you guys, that kind of training style, it, it becomes so weight focused. And I, I am a believer in the logbook. I've been tracking my workouts, every workout that I've had since 2008. Mm -hmm. So I have logbook upon logbook. And at this point I just put in my phone, but I have journals going back, you know, 12 years, but at the same time, it was to show me where I was at the week previously and know that I had more in the tank. But at the same time, I'm not going to compromise my form, structural integrity, or my, my health and safety. If I realize that one day something feels off, it, it's not, you know, there's, there's, like I said, there's a time to push and there's a time to pull back. Something feels off or, or I feel that something isn't, isn't feeling right. And that I'm either fatigued or that something feels off in terms of my, my structure, I, know, I need to know, all right, well, last week I hit 315 for 10, but this week maybe I'll pull back and I'll do a down set or uh, I'll go for a higher rep range. And I need to call an audible. And that's what a lot of people, I, I believe, we have these different ends of the spectrum in bodybuilding. You have the guys that are all instinctual. They're intuitive trainers and they do everything by a whim every week. Nothing is tracked and it's whatever they feel like one week's 20 sets, one week's 25. It's whatever their friend came in and motivated them. Um, their training frequency is whatever it deems they train, whatever body part on whatever day and there's no structure. And then we have other guys that are more similar to where I used to be, which are very type A and it's what the structure and the program says is what they're going to do. And if every week on week I have to progress, it's by any means, meaning if I have to slight my form and I have to round my back and I have to, you know, throw extra momentum into it or, you know, throw, you know, really become advantageous with my leverages. That's what I need to do to get the weight up. But what you don't realize is you're not activating the muscle correctly. And how is that progressive overload if the form is different from week to week? Yeah. And I think we've also got to bear in mind as well, progressive overload, the adding of say two and a half pounds or five pounds to the bar, that is the result of what you did the week before. It's not, you know, so people say so progressive overload is like is the method. But in a sense, we're all progressively overloading because that's mm -hmm. just progress. But in terms of what the the low intensity, low sorry, the low volume, high intensity crowd say is, that's just a low volume approach. But they sort of at a the Jordan Peters crowd, they sort of say this is the progressive overload method, and it always kind of irks me a little bit because I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry, we're all doing progressive overload. Mike gives yourself, he does progressive overload as well. It's yeah, just that it's just the method of getting the extra five pounds in the ball is a little bit different. We might add volume we might improve our technique we might shorten the rest periods but the end goal is we still want to get five pounds stronger whereas so it's not it's not just a realm of your jordan peters like we all do it and i i, I always i always like to say that point because you know we i'm just as interested you're just as interested in adding five pounds to the bar as the next guy but just because you know we don't necessarily do the progressive overload low volume approach but the progressive overload is more the outcome it's not the it's not the method i'd say it's kind of more like the result yeah i couldn't agree with that more I'm of the same ideology and I, I think more people need to promote that because it's become sexy to put on, you know, when we first started training, there was no Instagram videos. So people cared about weights on the forums. They really did promote that, but it was also about finding that mind and muscle connection, really getting in tune with the body part that you were working and really focusing more on quality than quantity. Yeah. There wasn't all this research on volume, 45 sets per week and, and really going to the far extents of either the intensity realm or the volume realm and having all these debates between, between camps, there was train hard, train effectively and, and execute full range of motion, you know, make sure that form is, is kept tight and is, is fits your structure, fits your, you know, me at six foot three, I'm not going to train the same way that someone that's five foot five or, or execute a movement the same way that someone that's five foot five is. But now it's, it's become these black and white type of things. And you have the aspect where you can promote yourself on social media, which I find phenomenal, but we see what other people are doing and we see the Larry Williams, you know, Larry Wills of the world. And we see these guys doing astronomical feats in terms of strength, but they're also muscular. So we think that's, as a result, you need to be strong to become muscular. And that's not the case. It's all person by person. What is strong for me is much different than what is strong for you with your background. So we have to realize that we have to stay in our own lane. And despite what must, might motivate us on social media or through, you know, 
online website subscriptions and stuff, that's great to use as intrinsic motivation. This person's pushing themselves to their utmost capacity. You know, if that's 600 pounds on a squat for them, that's great. But that doesn't mean that I need to progress and push myself to 600 pounds. If that's not what's benefiting, you know, my, my body physically or what's what I'm capable of. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think, you know, bringing it down to individual is so important. Oftentimes the logbook, your own logbook is pretty much your best training tool. You know, analyze what's going on there. So if we go back to some of the questions on the, on the list. So I wanted to talk about how you manage your preps being so busy or being on the road, because preps are probably some of the hardest things that people are going to do in their bodybuilding careers, but you've done them working, traveling. How, how do you do it? Yeah. So uh, it's, it was interesting. So, Whereas a lot of people, I've, I've had a lot of clients over the years that I've trained and I've prepped for shows and a lot of competitors that I knew, and a lot of them say a, almost a comment that's diametrically opposed. So they say their hardest prep was their, their first prep, but it was their easiest prep. And now let me explain that a little bit. So their, hard, their, prep, their first prep was their hardest prep because they weren't used to the, the, the extremes of dieting and the cardio and, and how exhausted they felt. But at the same time, they generally, your first prep, you were a little bit more naive to what was happening, you know, you weren't aware of, of the circumstances that you were going into. So there was less fear, less, um, I guess, hesitation. Um, but also you're generally in a, a further point back in your, in your life and into your career. So a lot of people that I've started young, whether it be a teenage bodybuilder or in college, they have less responsibility. They might not have a family yet, or they might not be as deep into their career. So they have a little bit more free time. So it was less responsibility, but harder physically. So, you know, easier mentally, harder physically. Whereas as you evolve and you get a little bit uh, more deeply entrenched into this, usually the process has to become more difficult because that is the process of progress. However, you're more psychologically adjusted and mentally into the process itself and you have more of a passion and more knowledge that you're able to execute more uh, adequately. But with me, my first prep ended up, uh, it was in 2015, and I was on the road the last six out of eight weeks that I had the, the prep. So it was a 10 week prep. I was home the first two weeks. I was on the road six weeks straight. And then I was home the last two weeks. So I never had, you know, I, that was my first experience. It was a 10 week prep, which in looking back in retrospect, a little bit too short, but like I said, I always stayed lean. So I, I was a little bit more flexible in that capacity, but looking back, that wasn't a normal experience for most people. So no. I, my first experience in prepping was I need to meal prep and be extremely micromanaged and have my stuff free, frozen. I need to make sure that any place that I travel to, any new place, in advance I found a gym that has hours that I could get in for fasted cardio or that I can make sure that after a long day of meetings it's still open and that I could access the gym for my training sessions. And I need to really micromanage my time so I became very structured and routine oriented. I wake up at the same time every day. It's to this day I do the same same type of routines. I'm very into um, rituals. So I study a lot of success rituals, you know, Tony Robbins, people like that. But at that time, I was literally just going off of what my schedule was. So it was very important that I didn't sleep in when I traveled. It was very important that I got up and everything had already been pre-prepared the night before in terms of meals. I could throw it into my six pack. I could go do my fasted cardio. I could come back, shower, and get on the road for the day. So I realized that there was certain things that I needed to do on, a, on an everyday basis. I needed to have to-do lists to make sure I checked everything off, and I needed to set alarms so that there was never an excuse that I forgot something because when you're on the road, especially traveling to and from places and meeting with people, there's a lot of times that things go over, whether it be a meeting or your travel, you get stuck in traffic. So if you don't have a, an accurate you know, um, depiction or you don't have an accurate grasp of the timing, especially when you're, say, I'm in Eastern Standard Time and I go to California for a trip and it's three hours time difference, I'm thrown off my normal schedule. If you don't readjust yourself automatically and try to reshift your circadian rhythm, then you're going to be thrown off for days at a time, which is going to draw back your progress. So I started looking into circadian biology. Mm. Um, years ago so I could offset some of the effects of jet lag. So that was the first thing I, I really got into, you know, certain melatonin timing to make sure that I was able to reset my sleep wake cycle, yep. making sure that I got sunlight exposure for sleep upon waking. Hey, you already know. <laughs> so I would make sure I got sun exposure immediately upon waking. I would do my fasted cardio. I made sure everything was regimented. I didn't sleep over a certain amount of time or I, I didn't you know a lot of times we get in on these flights and you want to go right to bed. Well, I would make sure I stayed up until that night and I reset my system to whatever time zone I was in, despite how tired I was. So making sure that my caffeine timing 
didn't go past a certain time. So it was all about regimentation in terms of making sure that anything that I would have done and checked off the box at home, I did regardless of how many distractions I had on the road. Can I ask how you manage fatigue um, in the sense of just prep fatigue? Because regardless yeah. of how well you are good your schedule, you're still going to get tired. How did you manage that? Yeah. So on the road, I made sure that I, I had certain times allocated for certain things. So like I said, morning was always allocated towards fasted cardio, preparing myself for the day, getting my notes ready, and then doing meetings. But what I would do is I would generally be in a car, and I didn't have a lunch break anymore because I wasn't in the office. Hmm. So what I would do is every day I would stop, whether it be on the side of a road at a rest stop, and I would try to manage a 20 to 30 minute nap. Now that might sound super small, no, but great. when you're in a different time zone and you're, you're constantly traveling and stressed, even 20 to 30 minutes is something that can re rejuvenate you. I also am very into reco recovery modality. So one thing that I started getting very into when I was traveling was anytime I would travel back home, I would book a massage therapy appointment before I landed. So I always made sure my Saturdays or Sundays, even if I only had one day off a week, that I would go see a massage therapist. I'd get deep tissue work. I would get recovery modalities. I would try to catch up on sleep, which the research is kind of um, – it contradicts itself with that, that you really can't catch up on sleep. But honestly, there's a placebo effect behind things as well. So I made sure that I allocated things. If I knew I had five to six really busy days on the road, my meals were prepped in advance. I made sure I allocated, you know, a day of the week. Say Sunday was my only day off. I would do all my meal prep for the week. So instead of doing what I would do at home, which is prepping twice per week, I did everything in one day. I freeze dried everything. I put it on a, a, a carry on bag. I made sure I always had it with me because here's the thing. There's been many flights, and this is what a lot of people don't consider when they don't fly 40 times a year, that you'll lose your luggage. And I can always go without my without clothing for a few days or without toiletries. I can buy those things. But my food, that's going to be a little bit more of a, a – predicament because it's more time intensive. So I always brought a carry-on bag. I would have a six-pack bag filled with with frozen food to the brim and I always had gym clothes in a carry-on with me. So no matter what, I was able to go to the gym. I would have my supplementation. I would have everything pre-bagged. You know, I had the advantage of working for a supplement company, so I had more whey protein and stuff than you can imagine. But I had everything pre, you know, already um, allocated and on my carry-on. So it was on my person. So if anything went wrong, and I do, I suggest the same thing to competitors because there's been a lot of times I've traveled and I've known people that have, their bags have gotten lost. They've lost their, their trunks, their shorts, um, whatever it may be, necessary things. So I always tell people, pack either a spare, a spare couple sets within your carry-on or pack the most important things, whether it's a, a, a bikini client's bikini in, in their carry-on whether it be your, your makeup and your jewelry, whatever you were going to need necessary, make sure you have it on you just in the rare case that you do get lost or it gets you know, held up in transit um, or you miss a flight. So that was one thing that I really um, made sure that I was always prepared. Um, recovery was huge for me, especially on weekends when I was downtime. And then if you think about it, when you're on the road, there's a lot of things you don't have, you're not going to do. So you're not going to catch up with your family, except if it's on the phone or you're not going to, um, do things at your house. Like generally I would do projects on the weekends. Uh, I would work on my, my place or, or build stuff out. Well, I don't have that time. So I would allocate it towards finding things within the area that were restorative. So whether it be meditation, whether it be going to see cryotherapy in a nearby area, um, whether it was extra mobility work. So I did a lot of self care. Um, you know, I would always have a foam roller with me, just little things that, that really made up for the fact that I was putting a lot of uh, an increased amount of systemic stress on my body through traveling, through a lot of, you know, intellectual work with accounts through sales is stressful in and of itself. And then also beating down my body, um, in terms of dietary wise and training wise, I knew I couldn't make up for it on the, the, um, nutrition front because I needed to be in a deficit, but between all those recovery modalities and then very precise supplementation, I'm a huge proponent of peri-workout nutrition, which I find is extremely beneficial within the pre, during, and post-workout periods um, to help accelerate recovery and, and recuperation. Yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. So I think it's a case of we are setting up as many of the factors to be non-factors as possible. Uh, and then we are we are going to be a little bit tired, we're more tired, but this is a case of at least we're giving ourselves the best fighting chance and then doing as much as we can to improve that recovery because we're going to be in a deficit, we're going to be tired, but we do. there's no point being tired and unprepared, <laughs> right? No, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, fantastic, love it. So let's uh, go on to the next question. Is, we've got advice for chasing both your bodybuilding dreams and security in business. Now, throughout all of this podcast, 
you've done a great job of, and it takes me right back to the beginning of what you said was this idea of balance. So even right from the beginning when you were choosing which of the physique um, uh, sort of paths you were going to progress in, it was something which was aligned with your goals. Absolutely. So can you talk us a little bit about young guys out there, they've got bodybuilding goals and they want to make sure they've got something to say for the future. What, what, what are the priorities? What, what, would you, what advice would you give them? Okay, so first you have to find your key driving factor, your key reason for doing something, and that should be your driver for everything. So a lot of times I see people that they, I don't want to say a delusional path towards bodybuilding, but we do find a lot of people within this industry that do have that kind of mindset, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And so like I spoke on the results, some people are too results focused rather than process oriented um, focused. Some people don't, aren't doing this for the right reasons. So you have to realize that this will, despite the fact that I'm looking for balance, that doesn't mean that I, I always achieved it. So you have to realize there are going to be a tremendous amount of sacrifices if you want to do well in something like bodybuilding and something like business. And they really parallel each other because they're both things that only you could do for yourself. You know, no one else can put in the work, can do the diet for you. No one else can build a business for you. You know what I mean? You might have coworkers and stuff, but at the end of the day, you are in charge of your you know, responsibilities for the day to get done. And if they don't, no one's going to save your job and nor is anyone going to save your bodybuilding prep. So you really have to find a key driving factor that on the days that you wake up unmotivated, tired, exhausted, and have no desire to do it, you're going to continue pushing through because you have this motivating force behind you, something that's internal, this driving force that's going to make sure that no matter what, you get it done because you know it's something that's a priority to you. And then also, you have to really always have a plan B. So hear a lot of these, these, uh, you know, I go to a lot of um, Gary V talks and stuff. I'm very fortunate that I'm, I'm near New York. So I go to a lot of motivational stuff and I, I believe in, I have this thing where I'll invest into one self, uh, one educational thing a month. So whether it be an RP strength seminar or it's a self-development conference or it's a Tony Robbins seminar, that's one thing I'm, I'm very into reinvesting into my education. But the reason I do that is because I want to hear these mindsets of people that have come before me and done great things. So there are certain people that, they say, don't have a plan B. You know, just plan A, burn the boats. You know, they have this ideology and I I believe in what they're saying. And I I think that they have for what they do and for the success they have, it's great to look at it like that. But you don't have a plan B and you only go in on one thing, say for instance, bodybuilding, and you don't think about your career, you don't think about your family, you don't think about your future. That is setting yourself up for for failure. So I always tell people to have a plan B in terms of what are you going to do with your life? And, and, Despite the fact that I do make a career out of fitness, as do you, it's not because of our physiques and it's not because of bodybuilding. This is just a passionate hobby that we have that we might make some from side money on through having had sponsorships or with associations or, or things of that sort. But really to be competitive, we're not making any money. And I will tell you, I've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world. And when I worked with Europa, for instance, we represent 350 of the biggest companies. So there was times that I had Sergio Oliva Jr. at my booth working because he was sponsored by the particular company I was working with, or we would have Jay Cutler, you know what I mean? And things of that sort. These are guys that are top in the world. Those are who are making the money, but there are a lot of guys that are top level competitors that don't make anything. And, uh, you know, and it's not all about that, but if you're doing this as your profession, it needs to be something that's financially viable so that you could support not only yourself, but for your family. So I always tell people, if you're trying to pursue both, you have to put everything into those things. So there is not going to be, you need to balance between those two things. But like I said, I have a two thirds rule. So I realized that during my preps, that first thing is my number one priority has to be my finances, has to be my business, because that is what's setting up the foundation for the rest of my life. So I have to make sure that I I complete all my tasks, all my responsibilities, and I run a company. So it doesn't matter if I'm tired, I'm drained, or I'm depleted, work still needs to get done. Because if not, no one's bringing in the sales. So that's my first priority. But when it comes to a bodybuilding prep, all my free time, all my other time is allocated towards that. That means I make sacrifices other places. I don't see my family as much. I don't have a social life. I'm not going out. I'm not having a great time. But that's all well and good because it's a temporary sacrifice I'm making. It's a means to an end. So it's, I enjoy this process. Yet again, coming back to the process, this is not a sacrifice for me. Yes, to the outside world, it's a sacrifice because I'm not doing what the average 27 year old would be doing. However, this is something I really want to do. So I always tell people, find multiple things you're passionate about and then attack those, but make sure you have two. So for instance, you do a bodybuilding prep and I've had many clients do this and the result hasn't been what they wanted because they are results you know, oriented. And I understand that we want to do the best. I want every client of mine to win and I want to win every time I compete, but I realize that if it doesn't happen, 
it's, it's not the, the end all be all. So I tell them, listen, if we're doing a prep, I can't have you sacrificing everything else because if I see that's the case and I see that you're not going to work, or for instance, I have a lot of younger guys that are, are college age and they want to do a physique show or they, I do a lot of photo shoot preps. So they want to do a photo shoot. Now this is something that is, is maybe a lifelong dream of yours or it's just a passion of yours. I would never allow one of my athletes or one of my clients to sacrifice their academic you know, future or their semester for the sake of a 12 week photo shoot prep. So I always have to reinforce that. So I believe as coaches and as educators and as influencers, especially, but we have to put a, a good impression out there and we have to really advocate that you need to be, you need to excel in all realms. You need to be well-rounded. You, you should be a Renaissance man. So like you alluded to earlier, you know, there are a lot of guys that post these pictures and they look phenomenal, awesome physique ripped. You know, we might want to emulate them from a, a physical standpoint. They have a physique that we admire, but they have nothing else going on. And, and those are the type of people and nothing against them, but those are the type of people I, I really hesitate when I see them influencing others because they're promoting this one-sided lifestyle or in the same realm you know, there's a lot of influencers that do the opposite and, and they eat garbage and they're constantly taking in hyper palatable foods and, and, you know, having this lifestyle where they're binge eating and they're promoting that. And people look at that and say, well, maybe I can do that and, and get away with it too. And that is, that's the exception to the rule, not the rule. So I always tell people, find a couple priorities. I always really preach, like I said, the three F's, you know, prioritize your family, your finances and your fitness and, and go after two of those at the same time and do the best of your ability to manage both. Now, to be honest with you, last couple of weeks of a prep, as we both know, it's it's hands off. There's no rules. So if you need to sacrifice, take a couple of days off from work um, to make sure you know your prep and your peak goes to to plan. By all means, I'm 100% encouraging of that because that is to really accelerate that end goal and really get you to where you've worked 12 weeks. But if you sacrifice your career for those 12 to 16 weeks, you really need to reevaluate uh, what this is in your life. 100%. Completely agree. Uh, yeah, I think getting that balance is ultimately going to make you a lot happier farther down the line. And it might seem like, hey, this is my bodybuilding, this is my life. I wanted to give everything to this, but but take it from guys who know you need the balance. Yeah, love it. Fantastic. Um, so we've talked, we've actually talked quite a lot about how to prep and train on the road um, anyway. So let's uh, move on to your online coaching. Uh, <laughs> Along, so alongside everything else that you've done, you also do online coaching as well. Can you talk a bit about your proudest moment so far? Oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> I, I do have some very competitive athletes. And despite that, most people, most coaches are going to highlight, like we spoke about previously, are going to highlight like their, their key athlete or their star athlete. But actually, uh, I had a friend, uh, a client actually, who I became very good friends with, who was re um, relocated for a job. So he went from living in the tri-state area, which is nearby my area. He used to go to a local gym that I went to. Um, and they sent him abroad to Spain. And initially we thought, he thought it was going to be a three month, uh, you know, relocation. And it turned out to be over a year. So first couple months he was out there. He didn't really take things seriously. He just wanted to get the job. It was an engineering job. It was a promotion in, in terms of the aspect of, of what he was doing career-wise in the States. And he wanted to make the most of it. So the first two to three months, he really didn't train. He became very out of shape. And now this was someone that was competitive. He was a competitor for years previously. Um, I helped them in the past and during the time period I saw him fall off and you know obviously I'm, I'm keeping in touch as much as possible through email um, and through whatsapp but I understood at the same token that he was putting himself everything towards a career and I respected that mm -hmm. uh, a few months into that he was uh, you know informed that it was going to be a year so he was going to have a, at least another nine months and now he had sacrificed a lot of his fitness as well as his health as a result um, he had put on quite a bit of weight a lot of body fat, health markers were off, his insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, for a young guy, I, I think his resting or his fasting glucose was like 115, so would be considered diabetic. Yeah. Um, unhealthy lifestyle, drinking a lot as a result of stress and not knowing anyone out there, didn't speak the language. So it was a really tough time for him mentally and then physically, and they were compounding upon each other. So we started working together again. Um, you know, we started from, from ground zero. And he had competed previously, so we made it a goal. We said, listen, let's clean up for summer, you know, so that you look good out there. And if something comes of it, right around the time period that you should be back home, there still will be shows. It was going to be the end of the season. He should have been back home right around um, Thanksgiving. So there was a couple of shows that are right before Miami Nationals out here in the States. Um, so we had a goal in mind, but I didn't want to make it just about that goal because 
I knew him as a person. I knew previous to that he had done shows and had terrible rebounds. So this is something he had went through binge purge cycles and things of that sort. So I really wanted to get that ideology past him. This is a lifestyle. And had you maintained that lifestyle during the three months that you were working on your career, had you had a little bit more balance, I'm not saying not go all out in your career, but had you done more cardio, had yeah. you just maintained more better nutrient or uh, nutritional practices, we would have been able to, um, you know, avoid some of the deleterious health effects that you had. And it's far so, easier to maintain than it is to push it back up. Yeah. Down. No, without a doubt. So we got back on and it was hard because now it was like someone that a, he wasn't in his comfort zone. He was in very unequipped gyms. And that now that's something we wouldn't we wouldn't complain about because now none of us have gyms. But um, at the time, you know, he was out of his comfort zone and he didn't have friends there. He didn't have training partners. There was very little motivating besides the fact that he didn't like what he saw in the mirror. So we worked together, um, did a completely a complete transformation. We ended up getting him on stage in his best shape to date, um, which we were both very surprised about. Um, despite me having faith in him, he had been someone that had been pushing for years. So his previous prep, he had done an 18 month off season and then into a prep looked great. And uh, within the span of nine months, we were able to recomp him. We improved his health markers, his lipids, uh, his HDL was increased, his LDL was decreased, his fasted glucose was down to 78 to 80 on most days um, in his dieting phase. So insulin sensitivity was primed uh, and he looked phenomenal and he was able to come back. He had advanced drastically within his career and he actually, you know, when he came back, I got to see him at the show himself. He was already back in the States. He had done his one-year term. He was reallocated towards his office in, in New Jersey. Um, he really said it was, it actually made his work life easier because yeah. he got into such a routine and it made, it gave him a drive to be out there and something to do. He lived with purpose every day rather than just being kind of upset that he was, you know, in this new environment at a stressful job and had nothing else to look forward to. This training became his everything. So honestly, that was, that was one of the best experiences I've had. You know, we're still friends to this day, he's still a client. Um, and we had a great experience and it just seen that transformation, but it wasn't just about the physical. It was more about the mental and the, and the psychological because being able to have that type of impact on someone going from their unhealthiest state, both physically and mentally, and then seeing them at their peak state, both physically in the flesh on stage, but also in a mental state where they had advanced themselves career wise, but they'd also develop, uh, advanced themselves in terms of self-development. It was, it was really cool. That sounds amazing. And I think use, being able to use fitness as a means to enhance other areas of your life is fantastic. And that, that's so good. That, that's got to be a, a goal for everyone. I think that's fantastic. Um, what are some of the... I'm aware I've taken up a lot of your time, by the way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, with a couple I, of... I need, I need as much time as you need, my friend. No, thank you. Um, so what, sticking with coaching, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced? So... That was a that was a great. I mean, that must have been a great challenge as well, just getting him initially remotivated. But um, talk about some of some of the biggest challenges you you faced. Like, what you, what you honestly, I think the biggest challenges I face, I'll say, from new clients. Um, and I feel that fitness today is much different than it was, say, five to ten years ago. So there is a lot more uh, information that's accessible on the web now, which is phenomenal. Yeah. But there are a lot of there, with that increase in accessible knowledge is an increase in um, the wrong sources, you know, non-credible sources. Yes. So I feel that there are still people, especially influencers, um, that promote things that aren't scientifically sound, healthy, and they're not the most optimal ways to go about going about things. But they have such this large influence that people are, are, easily, um, are easily impressed by them. And so that they take these things on and... and treat them as, as they're the end all be all information. So a lot of times I have people come to me and they're a proponent of this fad diet and they ask me, can we utilize this? This is the only way I, I only know keto or, you know, right now carnivore. I saw clients, carnivore. They, they, they tell me they can only eat meat. So I inquire with them. I'm, I'm saying, all right, well, you know, you're running carnivore, obviously that's only been around for about two years, you know, yeah. in, in the spotlight of fitness. So what'd you do before carnivore? You know, and they ate more of a Mediterranean type diet or more of a high carb, moderate protein, low fat diet. Um, and they did fine. Now, did they get the best results? No, they didn't. But were the other variables in their life aligned? They weren't either. So the biggest issue that I see is that people are misinformed. And we have this unfortunate, uh, you know, 
time period in our lives where people are so attached to certain camps and, and, and they want to be a part of something. So you want to be a vegan, you want to be paleo, you want to be a CrossFitter, and you want to align with these, these set of principles instead of incorporating different aspects of either one. So I'm the type of person, I don't have a style of coaching. I have, I have ideas, I have beliefs, but I have various methods. And if someone is, some, is, is someone that has poor insulin sensitivity or a little bit insulin resistant, they might need a higher, higher fat approach with, with moderate protein and lower carbohydrates. Now, if someone is extremely insulin sensitive, they're an ectomorph, they're lean, um, you know, they do very well with more glycolytic, higher volume work, I'm going to feed them more carbohydrates. But it's very customized and individual. And I feel that the industry, as of the last couple of years, has went more of a cookie cutter approach. And people have really taken those ideologies on and made them, it's like their dogma. So those dogmatic, uh, you know, approaches that are promoted by zealots are something that's really polluted or, or diluted this industry. And I have a lot of clients that come to me and they think that that's like the way. And the worst thing, the, the last thing I want to do is tell someone you're wrong. You know, a client, you're wrong. What you've been doing is wrong because they feel better. So they're getting that placebo effect. And maybe it's better than what they were doing previously, but it's not the best they can be doing. So it's, it's really opening up people's minds and saying, hey, listen, I know that this has worked for you. Give me a chance. We will work step by step. So I'm not going to take you from a keto diet to a high carb, low fat diet not going to do that. We're going to transition, but I want you to realize carbs are not the enemy and carbs are not bad. So it's, it's more of an ideology switch. And I honestly, I work with a lot of gen pop. So that's where yeah. you see, so that's where you see more of these things. You know, when you work with bodybuilders, they're a little bit more open. They're like I said, results focused. So if you tell them eat, you know, whatever, you know, eat rice cakes and, and tilapia every meal, which none of us would do, but they've done worse things in the past. You know, if they, they have to do a protein veggie diet, a protein sparing modified fast for a few days, they're fine. With the gen pop client, it's more of what they've seen promoted is what they think is the way and not realizing that a lot of times they've been mis, misinformed. So it, it's really re-educating and also not only giving them the right education, but giving them the right mindset behind their fitness and, and making them realize there's more ways, more than one way to skin a cat. I think with the fitness industry being such a, a mishmash of source of information, like you said at the beginning, when you're getting into it as a gen pop client and you're just getting into sort of the beginnings of it, the ones who shout the loudest and the ones which sound the most fabulous, like the keto diets and the fasting diets and all that kind of stuff. And they're both, you know, reasonable approaches, but they're very simplistic. And it's far easier to say, don't eat carbs, than it is to say, let me teach you about nutrition and actually, you know, something which is going to ultimately lead to a much more flexible and better approach for you physically and mentally, but that's a lot more work. So it's, it's easy to see why people are taken in by the simple approach. Okay. Just eat meat, don't eat carbs, just fast for X number of hours per day. You know, it's, it's, they're very simple prescriptions, but I think what we're, what we're trying to do with both of our practices is just have a bit more of an education for people. So set them up for life, you know, teach a man to fish, that kind of thing. And, and you saying that just to hit off that, I want to educate them. I want to inform them. I don't want them to rely on me forever. Um, so that's never my intention. So a lot of times I also, I find a big issue is that clients just want to be led. So they just want to be told what to do, which is all well and good. When you first start, I'm sure you had coaches when you first started and you took it as the gospel. But now I'm at the point with my own self that I coach myself, but I have various people that I interact with, whether it be mentors uh, friends within the community that I just have open discussions with and I share my ideologies or the methods or the things I'm thinking about doing and then I hear their their insight on them because I respect their opinions and there's certain things that I'm I'm dead set on due to my own you know biology due to what I know that I've seen with all my own biomarkers and my own biofeedback but then there's other things that I, I become open-minded and I say hey listen you know I, I respect your knowledge you know, you send me some cited sources. I looked into the research. Let me try that and I'll get back to you and see how it works. Whereas, you know, I have a lot of clients that they just want to be, you know, led and just follow the plan to a T, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but I also want them to think outside the box. So a lot of times I'm including, say, in their, I do very in depth programming. So in their cardio prescriptions, I'm giving them a reason as to why we're doing this in this capacity or why we're doing this length or why we're doing it fasted as opposed to fed or why we're timing nutrients in the fashion that they are, or what we're trying to avoid in certain, certain workout perimeters. And so that they understand that, all right, you know, Brandon's not always going to be around or maybe I won't always have the finances to employ Brandon. Um, but the fundamental principles he, he taught me, I can incorporate this. And also, I also think it's, it's great to teach them more stress management tools and lifestyle management tools where 
they can make a swap. Like I said, I'm not a fan of flexible dieting, but I give my all my clients food lists because I want them to have accessibility, especially in a time like now where food food sourcing isn't you know what it was a few months ago. So I don't want anyone to ever stress out any of my clients to stress out that they couldn't have you know chicken breasts you know and they could only get ground turkey or something very simple like that. So I, I really want to teach people principles and then help them apply it. And then also for them to de- those, them develop that knowledge so that they can apply it later on down the road. Brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, talk about um, goal setting and instilling good habits. So throughout the entire podcast, we've looked at this theme of having uh, a set sort of agenda for the day lists, things that you need to yeah. do. So being organized essentially is what we're talking about. Talk to us a little bit about how you, you go about personally, setting up your goals and instilling your habits to reach those goals. Cause I think that's vital. Okay. So first and foremost, um, goals are something that I do on a very frequent basis. So I, I do them in tiers. This is what, how it works for me personally. I instill this in a lot of my clients, uh, for their physique based goals, but I actually have it in different components. Like I said, I'm always going to come back to those three things. I have family goals, I have finance goals, and then I also have fitness goals. So for instance, in the context of this conversation, fitness goals, um, it might be this phase, I want to accumulate volume while also increasing my calories. So I'm going to put down a goal. My mesocycle length is six weeks. Uh, and these are the things I'm trying to accomplish within them. And then I'm going to know, say I want to incrementally uh, gain 0.5% of my body weight per week. I'm going to look on that and I'm going to track those things. So what do I need to know that I'm increasing scale weight or that I'm increasing muscle tissue. I need to know that I'm in a caloric surplus. So I need to manage my calories. I need to do daily scale weights to see my weight fluctuations and see how my body's responding. I need my biofeedback. So I need to see uh, how my blood glucose is reacting, what my calipers are reading, uh, my body fat accrual, things of that sort. But I also have to make sure that there's training progression. So I need to track my training. So all those things are the daily checklist. So I'll have set that in advance. All right, I'm going to make sure that I monitor all these things. But even in, in different goals, when it comes to more uh, metaphysical goals or, or more um, career goals, you know, I always look at what is my end goal, meaning for the year, I look at things in, in year, you know, periodized um, kind of plans. Uh, what is my goal for this year? So for instance, with my business, it's to hit a certain threshold uh, in terms of uh, total revenue. So how do, I, how do I accomplish that? Well, if I'm going to do it, you know, just incrementally, and I'm going to do more of a linear approach. Every month I need to hit this threshold. So every day I need to hit this threshold. And now I have to realize that there's going to be undulations in that. So what do I have to do every single day? So for instance, within my business, I make between 40 and 60 calls a day. And now the reason for that is that 40 is my minimum threshold. And there's some days that they're really long calls. And I've already been working 10 to 12 hours when I hit that 40th call. Yeah. So instead of burning myself out and going to that 60th call and done doing 20 more calls that were subpar quality, let me say, all right, well, I worked my 10 to 12 hours. You know, I've accomplished my goals for the day. You know, I hit the numbers that I need to hit or I exceeded them, hopefully. Um, let me pull back at 40 and I'll make up those other. So on the average, I'm always going to hit 50 calls a day, but it doesn't mean that every single day is 50. It means some days 40, some days 60. On that note, uh, are you sort of do? you said you're into rituals. Are you doing anything at the end of the day to signify that you have achieved. That'd be interesting so I, to hear I, what you do. Yeah, so I have morning, I've actually very set, it's, it's very funny because my girlfriend knows that she's not going to hear from me or I'm going to be out of our place in the morning uh, for at least the first hour and a half to two hours a day. So morning rituals, first thing I do personally, I get up, take, take supplements, um, just set my mind right, I take some nootropics, some fat burning um, stuff uh, or supplements and just get my mind right. And I do 20 to 30 minute meditation. So I'm just saying, letting stimulants hit me, um, and then I'm going into facet cardio, which I usually do a lot of my content creation during. Mm. So I'll go out for a walk in nature. Um, and it's not really for the cardiovascular benefit. I'm trying to get sun exposure and set up my circadian rhythm. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to expose myself to some type of nature, some greenery, which is going to help with dopamine production. It's going to help with mood regulation, things of that sort. And then I'm also very expressive in terms of my my own ability to create. I'm very creative in the morning. I find myself to be extremely productive in the early hours of the morning. So I'll do content creation, or if I've already created content for the for the day, say the night previously, what I'll do is I'll, I'll listen to an educational podcast. I always start my day with at least an hour of educational content, whether it's a seminar, it's an audio book, 
it's an educational podcast, it's a lecture, it's a YouTube video. First thing that I consume, I find myself to be very, uh, I have a very good ability to retain information when I do it first thing upon waking before my head's clouded with work and all that kind of stuff, as well as right before bed. So those are the two times I do that. Another thing that I do is I have all my notifications turned off. There's no social media. There is no text messaging. There's no emails. Now, I do that because I want to be proactive rather than reactive. So I don't want anyone, you know, the stress of work or a client or, you know, my customers impacting how I start my morning. This is for my own productivity. So I set up that first hour. I do my meditation. I do my cardio. I do some type of educational. I invest into myself. And then once I get back, I take a shower. And from then on, it's, it's time to get to work. And then I can invest and I can, I can be reactive I can answer my emails. I can answer my phone calls, things of that sort. So I set up my morning every day like that. So now you've already seen I've set up my circadian balance for the day. Sleep is very crucial to me. So I'm, I'm very into setting up uh, sleep-wake cycles. Before bed, I, I have certain things I do. So I, will, I have a wind-down routine, which I find to be really conducive to getting my goals. So when I start my morning, when I'm already done with showering and stuff, the first thing I do is I look at my list of my to-do list for the day, but that to-do list has been made the night before. Mm -hmm. So before going to bed, um, you know, I take my nighttime supplementation, I shower, I cool my body temperature. So I'm going to be able to get into a relaxed state. And then the last thing I do before I go to bed is I make a list and I literally just try to do what I consider a brain dump. So anything that's on my mind, I'm trying to get off, off my head and almost as an Ahmad, to listen, I'm going to be, you know, tackling this tomorrow. I don't need to worry about it tonight. So everything yeah. I need to do for the day. And I also have ones for the week that I do on Sunday. So every day I get, I get like a euphoric like boost when I knock things off my to-do list. Yeah, so yeah, I start, it's, it's wins for the day. So I always tell people, if you win your morning, you'll win your day. So that's why I do a personal win, which is me doing the things that are on my daily checklist for myself personally. And then I have my career stuff, which is the, the rest of that list that is call this client and I structure the night before what key accounts I'm going to reach out to, what sales numbers I want to hit or I need to hit, what new promotions I'm going to be doing, what new products we have launching um, so that I'm very organized in the morning. I'm not flustered because I feel like being, you know, unprepared is the worst feeling in the world. So I'm someone that I'm very type A. I like being regimented. So I set that up. And it makes sure that every day I'm, I'm working actively towards something. And I, I'll be honest, Faz, not every day do I get everything on my list checked off. But the majority of that list is, is an accomplishment. And that allows me to go to sleep the next day. And if I see that I had 12 things on my to-do list and I got done 10, those next two are going to be moved on to the top of my next day's to-do list. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm a big fan of lists and I've, I've gotten out of the habit of doing them recently, but that's something I need to get back into to doing. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful practical look at how somebody does that. Somebody, a very high achieving person does that. I think that's, that's a great, that's a great bit of education for the audience. So, you know what, Brandon, we're going to end with one last question. Absolutely. And this is, um, we're going to end with funny fitness and coaching related stories. Ooh. All right. <laughs> Are we doing anything? Anything whatsoever, just for the personal touch. Because <laughs> I've, I've, right. I've had a really good time listening to what you've been saying. I think I've personally got a lot out of it, you know. Um, and I, I think the audience are going to get a lot of out of it. So, but um, I'd, I'd love, to, love to hear a bit more of a personal side of you. That would be fantastic. All right. So uh, <laughs> this is not me personally, yeah. but I did have a friend who was a top pro um, at, years ago when Men's Speaks first started. And um, a little embarrassing about him, so I won't name his name. But um, he was doing doing a, a string of shows, and uh, there was a show I was going to watch in person. So I've been very fortunate that I've worked for different companies, and a lot of times bigger shows within the Northeast we've sponsored. So I've worked the Olympia, I've worked the Arnold, but also shows like the New York Pro, which is quite prominent. So uh, I was excited to see him at the New York Pro. I was working the event. I had a booth there for my company. And um, he was driving from, um, I believe it was Connecticut, Hit another show he had done the week before. He had stayed out there to train because there's a very uh, popular gym called Montanary Brothers Gym in Connecticut. And so he was traveling back to New York. And um, he had been loading throughout the, you know, um, throughout the ride over there because he was coming the morning of the show and um, hits me up and he asked me if I had an extra pair of board shorts. So I'm like, and now mind you, we're different sizes. And I'm like, no, you know, I don't have anything on me. I literally had work clothes on. So I had slacks and a polo. So I was like, do you need anything? He's like, yeah, do you think you can get me a size, whatever, 30? So, um, you know, 
needless to say, I'm like, all right. So I thought he forgot the shorts or the shorts he had worn the week before. Maybe he got docked down on, so he didn't want to wear them. So he gets in, he's flustered. You could tell he was running a little bit late. Um, needless to say, he had gotten sick on the ride over and was already dressed and had, you know, pretty much gotten the shits on himself. So <laughs> mind you, it's in the morning of the show. So prejudging, you know, it was a couple hours yeah. away. And I'm thinking to myself, so I kept asking him, I'm like, dude, why didn't you have your shorts? So he like, wouldn't explain to me, but he looked <laughs> noticeably off. Like yeah. his physique looked off. He looked stressed. He was holding water. So during, you know, after prejudging, he came back and he was like very disappointed and stuff. So we went out to get lunch and he just, he just came out and he was like, dude, I was loading so hard. I shit myself. <laughs> but I had the shorts on. I was ready to go. I was tanned up. I'm driving back from Connecticut. It should have been a couple hours drive. I'm going to get carbs in me. I was nervous because I was flat. So, Honestly, that was that's one of the <laughs> honestly, that's great. no terrible. <laughs> but did you, but did you get him in shorts? Time, you know what? At the same time, I gave him. You know, I had to give it to him because he still got up on a pro stage. Yeah. He didn't let it stop him. So. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so you got him the shorts, and he saved the day. I did get him the shorts. He wore a great pair of shorts. I'm not going to lie. So it was, like, it was whatever I could find. Yeah. I think I went to like a TJ Maxx, which is right, a store, yeah. like a department store. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't yeah. like a fresh pair of shorts, but it was better than the ones he had. Yeah, with the, the you know? <laughs> yeah, better than all the stain. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, thank you. Right, Brandon. Thanks very much for that. It was been absolutely fantastic to have you on. And uh, it's been great to have a have a have an in depth chat with you. I think you, as I say, I've certainly gotten a lot out of this. And I think the audience will love the chat. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Faz. All right, Brandon. Take care.